Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. We're heading into a Premier League weekend looking for our first points of the season after two very difficult opening games. An unfortunate quirk of the fixture list gave us Manchester City and Chelsea. And I think I've written this week and spoken about it on the Arscast Extra with James about how really these two games we need to just kind of put them to one side now and concentrate on what's to come. If you do look at those games, they're not easy by any stretch. No Premier League game could be considered easy, but... They're not as difficult as those opening two games, and they are a really good chance for us to go on a bit of a run, build some momentum, and for Unai Emery to start to shape his team into the the kind of side that he wants and the kind of performances that he wants from them uh, throughout the season. So hopefully we can do that. A bit later on, we are going to be looking ahead briefly to the West Ham game. There are some people who used to play for Arsenal coming home. Jack Wilshire, of course, Lucas Perez. But the, uh, the first part of this particular podcast is going to be an interview with somebody who scored many, many goals for Arsenal, one of which was at Anfield 89. Another was in the Cup Winners' Cup final in uh, 1994 when we beat Parma 1-0 the last time we won a European trophy. It was the only goal of the game, and I'm talking, of course, about Alan Smith. He's got a brand new book out, and uh, very shortly I'm going to talk to Alan about his book, about his career, his punditry work, about what's going on at Arsenal uh, at the moment as well, the change of manager. Arsene Wenger's departure, Unai Emery's arrival, and all that kind of stuff. And then after that, we'll have a brief look ahead to the uh, to the West Ham game and whatever else might come up. Just to let you know that if you want to win a copy of Alan's book, you can do so by going to the website, arsblog.com, and have a look there. You'll find a post which will give you a chance to win a copy, a signed copy, no less, of the book, uh, which is called uh, Heads Up My Life Story by Alan Smith. So if you fancy winning a copy, head along to the website find the post there's a very 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 difficult question in there for you to answer it's it's very very hard i'm sure you're going to I'm sure you're going to struggle with it, but if you can manage to find the answer, you can email your uh, your entry to the competition. You've got to do it by Sunday night, though, okay? So you've got to get your entry in by Sunday night, and we'll announce the winners on the blog on Monday morning. So uh, so there you go. You know where to find it. Uh, just to remind you as well that if you want something else to listen to between the Arsecast Extra and this particular podcast, James and I did a, a Q&A sort of podcast on our Patreon site. So if you're an Arseblog member on Patreon, you can find that it's basically a uh, hundred and something questions we answered about football about life about why he didn't invite me to his wedding all, all kinds of stuff in there it's uh, it's quite a good fun podcast so if you are an arseblog member on patreon you can find that right now you can log in and uh, and download it in your favorite podcasting app and all the rest if you're not already an arseblog member on patreon you can sign up for just five euros a month five euros a month gives you access to lots of extra podcasts and written content as well as uh, having that warm glow of knowing that your five euros goes to help pay all our writers. It helps support everything that we do here on the website, on Arsblog and Arsblog News and everything else. So if you're not already a member and you feel like becoming one, go to patreon.com forward slash Arsblog. That's patreon.com forward slash Arsblog. And of course, this
this isn't a, a paywall or anything like it. Everything that you get for free and have always got for free on Arsblog remains 100% free. This is extra content, bonus content for you as a thank you for your support and for your subscription. There's some enjoyable stuff in there, history podcasts, Q&As, phone-ins, lots and lots of stuff for you to listen to. Right, let's get on with the show and let's talk to a man who scored 115 goals for Arsenal. He was instrumental in title-winning seasons. He won the European Cup Winners' Cup with his goal in 1994. He's got a brand new book out. It's called Heads Up, My Life Story. I'm, of course, talking about Alan Smith. Hi, Alan. Hi there. Nice to be here. Tell me a little bit about the the book and the idea behind the book. Uh, was it something you had had in your mind before, or was it a case that a publisher came to you and said, look, we'd like to do your story, or how exactly did it work? No, I, I actively went uh, pursuing a deal. I, I kind of always had a book in mind, but always pushed it to um, to the back of the pile, really. I, I don't know, but... I wrote for the Daily Telegraph for 20 years, and when that agreement came to an end, I just thought it maybe it was a natural time to um, put down in words my uh, my life and times, as it were, uh, because I wanted to continue writing, and I uh, I wrote the book myself. I'm very pleased to have done that. Yeah, I was, I was uh, going to ask yeah, you. It seemed the right time. Yeah, I was going to ask you that, because a lot of footballers will – work alongside a, a ghostwriter uh, and the book is produced that way. So it's X mm. by X footballer, but behind the scenes, there's a, a journalist or a writer doing that. So uh, that that's an interesting thing. Was How did you find the, the, the process of it? Was it, uh, was it a challenge? Because, you know, writing an article uh, for a newspaper and writing a book are two very different things. Um, they're very yeah, different. Yeah. I think I think it was um, elongating my thoughts as much as anything that you have to get used to, you know, with newspapers. Oh, can you do eight hundred words on this, a thousand words on that? Uh, whereas with a book, you you, you uh, broach in a particular subject, uh, and sometimes maybe I didn't expand enough on it, and the publisher who who helped me through it said, "Well, I want to hear a bit more on this, Alan, a bit more on that." Mm. So. Once you got your head around that, it was it was it was really enjoyable to do. Um, yeah, and most lads don't do it themselves, and you you can understand that because most lads don't really go into to writing after their careers. But uh, it's something I did do, so uh, it would have been silly not to have tackled it myself. Sure. What was it like to to sit down and to go through your, I presume, life and career? Uh, in, in that way to sort of reflect on where you started, where you got to, where you are now and how you got there. Was was there anything that uh, happened during that process that you weren't expecting? You do tend to get a bit emotional at times when, you, when you're looking back in detail. I've found myself sitting here, you know, once or twice with a tear in the eye. It's, it yeah. sounds a bit silly, but... Um, Especially maybe as well when you when you look right back to your childhood. Yeah. Um, I mean, I didn't think I had a particularly good memory, but when it comes to it, you, you do remember key staging posts in your life, key little moments, stories. Um, so it was nice going way back. I think especially I played for a non-league team called Alf Church in the Southern League, and it was nice talking about those days when, Football was a much different entity, um, and non-league football, of course, uh, even more so. It was nice revisiting that, um, talking to one or two people about it. And the, the early Leicester years, too, uh, at the start of the 80s, and getting to grips with professional football and, and all that entailed, and and what the game was like then and what our relationship with fans was like. So uh, it was quite fascinating, really, to, to go back in depth. Yeah, I mean, because football now is this slick, massive product, um, which, I, you know, I don't like to call it that, but I think we have to recognise that's what it is, that the business side of football, whether it's from broadcasting, whether it's from the clubs themselves, merchandising, commercialization of the game itself is is part and parcel of it now. So 
did you get wistful looking back at those early days of your career, the non-league stuff, the first couple of years with with Leicester when football was really very, very different? Yeah, I mean, listen, it's easy to get nostalgic and uh, think that it was better in those days and there were a lot of things that were worse. I mean, one aspect was hooliganism and one or two episodes that, uh, I mean, I experienced in stadiums. My wife, actually, or my girlfriend back then, she probably saw more of it. She remembered one day at Filbert Street, Leicester's old ground, she just getting out of the car there in the car park and... uh, this horde of Chelsea fans stampeded past and there was blood and glass everywhere. <laughs> and they quickly jumped back in the car. And another time, walking up uh, to Highbury, past the Gunners pub, and mm. a lad came flying out the window. I think it was before Millwall, a Millwall game. A lad <laughs> came flying out the window, complete with his chair, and he ended up landing on the pavement in his chair. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody had just casually thrown him out the window. So... It was a bit scary, but so so those aspects clearly um, <laughs> were not for the better. Um, maybe you know the connection we had with supporters was, was stronger then. Um, was it? I mean, there was more more of a connection between players and fans because the 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 wage gap wasn't quite as big as it was, and obviously the the, the access was different. Players are a bit more cosseted now, and they've got their own yeah. entrances and, and what have you. But the you know the gap financially between the man on the street, if you like, and the professional footballer, while still significant, wasn't anywhere near the same as it is now. No, it wasn't. Um, you know, we drove cars, for instance, that weren't beyond the grasp of uh, quite a few people. I turned up in a Ford Escort my first day for the Leicester training. And yeah, we used to attend a lot of events, the the local supporters, player of the year dues, stuff like this. And yeah. it was very much the case at Arsenal as well. Uh, we'd always go along to a, a venue in London and um, you'd have your little roped off bit, you know, but um it never lasted for too long after a drink or two and you and you just mix with, with, with the fans and um, you knew quite a few by name. Was being a footballer something you had always wanted? Was it, was it a, a big ambition or was it something that kind of happened because you were obviously very good at the game and as you progressed it became more of a, a possibility or a reality? Well, I, I was the classic boy that played from uh, dawn till dusk with my mates down the mm. park. Uh, and I was always one of the best at football at, at school level, you know, and I played for my county. Um, but then come the age of 16, quite a few of my peers got snapped up to sign uh, apprenticeship forms at clubs, as it was then. Yeah. Um, although I, I don't think I would have done that. I, I passed my 11 plus. I went to a, a grammar school a boys' school in Birmingham, and um, I always enjoyed my studies, and I wanted to stay on and do my A-levels, so I don't think I would have chucked it all in to become an apprenticeship, but I never had the choice. Um, Mm. And then completing my A-levels, went to university, or Polytechnic as it was then, Coventry Poly. And I suppose at that point, you know, I'm just thinking, well, I'll get stuck into my degree and, and enjoy football on the side, but really thinking that my my dream of becoming professional had, had gone at that point. So, as, as I say, I started playing for Alf Church, which was a good level. I just enjoyed it. But scouts did come, did used to come to those matches, uh, and, and that's, how it, that's how it started. With Lester, what were you studying in the Polytechnic? Uh, I was studying uh, modern languages, French and German and Spanish. Right. Uh, so, I didn't complete uh the course i only finished the first year uh and then leicester offered me a a four-year contract Uh, and i didn't have too many hesitations because um i hadn't really got into the course i i was one of only two boys in the year on that course so (laughs) it's it it sounds funny but you you hadn't really made mates yeah um i was the digs that i was in weren't ideal uh (laughs) I wasn't in a halls of residence because I was too late applying. But uh, so it wasn't the student experience I was hoping for. But you know, if you're going to get offered a four-year contract um, by a, a club like Leicester, yeah, I mean, I was always going to take it, thinking, well, I could always go back to my studies. Sure. And how did you find the 
the step up, I guess, then from playing football at that level to being a professional and to football being your job and everything that comes with that. Was that something you took to naturally or, you know, did it take you a little while to find your feet? The hardest thing I remember was the physical side of training every day. Um, with Alf Church, it had been a Tuesday and Thursday night, yeah. a couple of hours. Uh, but all of a sudden, it was every day. Um, and I drove in from Birmingham. I commuted. Uh, I never – my girlfriend was back in Birmingham, and I just didn't consider moving over to Leicester for whatever reason. But I was – there was a couple of lads. Well, Stevie, Stevie Linex was the first. He was a black country boy. Mm. And we'd share the uh, the driving responsibilities. We'd meet at Corley Services on the M6 and take it in turns from there to drive to Leicester. So that was no real problem. But, yeah, it was a bit draining in the first um, few months to, to be at it every day. And, of course, the, the hiking standards was uh, there, obvious. So you had to uh, step up. But I enjoyed it. Yeah, I loved it. It, it was great. I, ne- I didn't really see it as a problem. Mm. Um George Graham had a, an eye for a player. Uh, he brought in some really talented and effective players for Arsenal at that time. How did how did the move come about? Was there any was there any doubt in your mind about uh, moving to Arsenal? Were there other options on the table for you? Well, so Alex Ferguson or Alex Ferguson, as he was, rang me up one January evening. I think it was. I was at home. I was watching Coronation Street with mum and dad and the phone went and mum went out to the hall as you know the phone was always out in the hall <laughs> in those days and uh, she came back in and said oh there's an Alex Ferguson on the phone for you and I said are you sure mum Alex Ferguson the Alex Ferguson from Manchester United and she said well I think so dear but of course <laughs> he, he didn't have the stature that he did subsequently sure. he'd only been in the job I think um, from the summer before so he was just getting his feet under the table but he wanted me to wait until the end of that season and sign for United. Right. Um, whereas Arsenal, their interest had already become made, been made known and they wanted me to sign um, a little bit earlier. Yeah. Um, but I said to, I said to uh, Alex that I'd, I'd kind of made up my mind. I wanted to join Arsenal and uh, I, I turned down his offer. Uh, and, and at that point he said, well, fair enough, son. You know, good luck. Good luck. Um, and I suppose looking back uh, and you look how Manchester United were doing and did do in the years to come, I made the right decision Yeah, because um, it took them quite a while to uh, get to the point they wanted to get whilst we, we won the league twice before that. What were your first impressions of of Arsenal as a club when you arrived? How different was it from, from Leicester? Much different, yeah. Um, again, the hiking standards... In training was obvious. It hit me like a brick, really. Just little things like one-on-ones. We do feed the ball out to the striker, and you try and attack a defender, yeah. get past him and score. And I'd be put up against David O'Leary and Paddy. He was some defender. He he, he never committed himself. He, he rarely went to ground, but he he had such quick feet, and he'd just kind of shuttle you down a blind alley and. You'd, you'd run out of space and ideas. I could never get past him. And just little <laughs> things like that yeah. um, gave you an idea of, of the kind of club you were at. It was obviously a club just in transition at that time, but um, it, it, it was a challenge, yeah. But, um, I mean, I was loving it. I was loving it. I, I, but I do remember after a few weeks, I mean, we hadn't won our first three games. We lost at home to Liverpool uh, in in eighty seven at the start of that season, then we uh, went to QPR and Man United. I think we drew at QPR, lost at Man U, or mm. maybe the other way around. But after three games, you know, um, one point on the board, it wasn't great. And went into training one day, picked up the Sun, uh, and there was a big back page splash saying Arsenal going for Kerry Dixon, who was the big name at Chelsea at the time because Alan Smith hasn't impressed and uh, after three games on the team <laughs> table thinking blimey <laughs> it's, it's a tough school down here I haven't scored for three games and they're trying to find a replacement for me <laughs> um, but that was just an indication of the extra expectation and pressure that you had at a big club like Arsenal 
Do, um, could could that have been calculated in some way? Because uh, I spoke recently to to Liam Brady, and he told me a story about how when he came back from Italy, he sort of put the feelers out to see if there might be room for him at Arsenal again. And it wasn't long, obviously, after George had, had taken over. And the way that he did this was to ask a journalist, I can't remember what paper he said the journalist worked for, but the journalist then sort of put the feelers out to George and George said, no. And it came back then uh, to Liam, no, it's not going to It's not gonna happen at Arsenal. He went off to play for, for West Ham. I mean, could that Kerry Dixon story have been manufactured to to sort of not not keep you on your toes but to kind of uh act as a motivational factor it may be yeah maybe things a lot of things go on beyond the scenes don't they that you're not altogether aware of yeah. so george might have been uh Playing a cute one. I don't know. I've never <laughs> asked him about it. Next time I see him, I'll have to, I'll have to ask him. But um, luckily, the game after that, Portsmouth at home, I got a hat trick. So I kind of put one or two doubts to bed and um, and kicked on a little bit, settled on a bit. You have scored two of the most uh, important goals in in Arsenal's history. Obviously, Anfield '89, the first goal. With the documentary that came out last year, the one that, that Lee Dixon was involved in, Amy Lawrence, um, and that goal being so uh, iconic, obviously the, the Michael Thomas one is the one that people talk about um, because of the, the impact that it had on the game. Was it difficult to to write about that in a way that people haven't already heard? Was there a perspective you were able to give on that goal that, that we haven't heard before. Yeah, I suppose that was the challenge because, as you say, a lot had been said about it with the film. We'd all been asked to uh, recount our memories. Um, but when I sat down, I, I just tried to go in as much into as much detail as I possibly could uh, from my perspective and just little things that were said uh, and done on the day. Listen to. To big Tottenham fan, uh, Tottenham, excuse me, to big Arsenal fans who know everything about the club, about Anfield '89. Maybe much of what I've said won't be news, but then again, there'll be a lot of people that that won't know about some of the stuff. And I'm talking about my feelings as well. Um, my wife was late getting up there. She got stuck in traffic. She was actually pregnant with our first child and she was being shoved and punted about all over the shop when I scored and Mickey right. scored. So uh, she didn't know it at the time, but um, she was pregnant. Um, and, uh, yeah, just just the circumstances around it. I mean, it was nice just to go into detail and, and our feelings on the pitch, what was said. What was we were it? always a vocal team. Yeah. Always a vocal team. And I, I remember on that night... There was a bit of shouting, but there was there was no bollocking or anything like that. We were all just so pumped up. It was just more encouragement, and the game was so fast. There was hardly time to talk, really. What was it never stopped? What was your feeling when the Liverpool players went over to the to the official uh, and the the referee and the linesman had their their little discussion? What were you feeling at that point? Well, terrified that he was going <laughs> to disallow it. And I thought for all the world that he would because you'd got about five or six Liverpool lads who were big characters mm. in his ear and we'd only got David O'Leary and I do not know why we didn't have more of our players going over to uh, balance it up. But um, Ronnie Whelan and Steve McMahon, Alan Hansen, those kind of figures were trying to argue the case. But the, the referee has, has since said that he was never going to disallow it. He was just leaving time for things to settle down. He was always going to give it, so he thought he'd go and talk to the linesman. Um, but when he did eventually point to uh, the centre spot, I mean, it was just great relief. It, yeah. it was. And and kind of a another roar went up from the Liverpool fans as much as, much as from ours. You know, encouraging their team on. I mean, it, it was it was deafening that night in, in the ground, and it's the volume seemed to go up another notch after that goal. And you know, if anything, the pace got a bit more frenetic. Um, it, yeah, yeah, it was an amazing moment when he did point to the centre. Yeah, and obviously when you won it, I mean, to to be involved in a game like that, 
with a prize like that at the end of it in the circumstances in in which it happened it it must be just something that stays with you forever like i know you know mm. fo- many footballers achieve many things but very few will have won a league title the way that you did and the rest of the arsenal team did that night it was just almost impossible to script it you wouldn't believe it if it was scripted no no and i think normally when you experience a big moment um, in football, you're not quite aware of the ramifications of it and only in mm. three, four, five years' time, whatever, does it become clear. But I think back then, I remember sitting down at the end absolutely knackered and you know, we had a glass of champagne and just taking a, five seconds to get out of breath and we realised that I think somebody said actually that hey, nothing's going to get better than this, lads. We might as well pack up now, hang up our boots. <laughs> nothing is going to get better than this. So we did realise where it would stand in history, I think, but maybe not to, to the full extent because all these years on, it, it seems to get more more special looking back. But um, yeah, it, I think we all felt proud to be involved. We We still do very much so feel proud to be involved in the game like that that has gone down in history and will be hard to beat in sure. terms of drama. Uh, the the Anfield 89 triumph was the first of two league titles under George Graham. And, you know, when people look back and they think of George Graham, they think often of dour defensive football and they think of, uh, you know, his his focus, particularly in the latter years, uh, on on the one nil to the Arsenal theme that that did the rounds. But the nineteen ninety ninety one season, when Arsenal won the league in real style, despite having points deducted, um, losing only one game, do do you sometimes feel like that team doesn't quite get the credit it deserves for what they did that season? Yeah, possibly so. Possibly so, I think so. Obviously, we've been overshadowed by the Invincibles later on. Um, but it, I think it was an incredible achievement, just that one game against Chelsea. We were a much more uh, complete side, I think, probably, than the 89. Well, the 89 squad team was very special mm. to all of us because it was something new. We were at the beginning of things, virtually. Uh, but we got that extra couple of years' experience added to the team and as Limpar, David Seaman. Um, and uh, yeah, I think, yeah, looking back to do that, as you say, two points deducted. Um, we didn't have too many weaknesses. And yeah, I mean, the whole one nil to the Arsenal thing didn't come in, did it, and did it until 94. Yeah. I think we were top scorers in 91. We, we did play some good football. Uh, we had a swagger about us. We knew we were a good team. We were a strong physical side that worked extremely hard without the ball. I mean, people are mm. forever talking these days about the press and the high press and what have you. But, I mean, the likes of me and Merce, how we worked in training, in, in pairs, closing down, showing the man on the ball into our partner. I mean, we did it till we were blue in the face. And I think that was something that opposing managers always admired, how hard we all worked off the ball in, in closing them down. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it was great to do what we did. Yeah, would have been nice to have uh, <laughs> gone the whole season. Uh, but uh, we couldn't complain at the end of it. Yeah, I mean, obviously, that was the, those were George's instructions. He was uh, very keen on players to work hard on the pitch. Yeah, he, he used to offer up, um, to me, he, he would say, look at Ian Rush for Liverpool, how hard... He runs, how hard he closes down his centre-half or the full-back dashes across the pitch. And he wanted the same from me. And, you know, I think I, I, I put in that kind of work, uh, as did, uh, as I said, Paul Merson and, and all the other boys. Um, we uh, and it, it was very organised as well because George put on so many different sessions to get us to, to close down in, a, in an organised, efficient way mm. where... We all knew where each other were, what we were doing, what we were trying to do. Show him inside. That was yeah. the manager. Don't let the fullback pass it up the line or the winger pass it up the line. Show him inside to traffic where you've got teammates waiting. Um, and and from that respect, yeah, in that respect, we were really organised. 
What was your relationship like with, with George? Obviously, he, you were somebody he brought into the club who he clearly rated very highly as a player. But I listened to Lee Dixon talking on a podcast recently where he said there was you know, a lot of uh, respect for George, but he was a hard taskmaster that he was slightly afraid of him in, in some ways. Was that true for everyone or was, you know, was his relationship with players different? Um, the only player with whom his relationship was different, I'd say, would be Tony Adams right. uh, as his captain. Um, but yeah, I can see where Lee's coming from. I mean, <laughs> there was that respect and that fear uh, of him. He was very much the, the schoolmaster, not schoolmasterly, but very much the, the, the gaffer and you were his subjects. He never got close socially. Mm. Um I remember we were in uh, Spain one day, uh, down in Puerto Banus, and we'd had a few drinks. We were uh, up on the stage of this place singing, <laughs> Georgie, Georgie, stand by me. Um, <laughs> the old Benny King classic. Yeah. <laughs> and in walked, uh, in walked the gaffer, and he, he would never go anywhere uh, where we were having a drink, so he quickly turned around and uh, disappeared. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that, that's just how it was. Um you you wanted to please him though. That was the thing. You wanted to earn his admiration. He was always on the training ground. Hardly ever missed uh, a session. If he did, you'd go, "Oh, that's nice. We can have a little um, easy one today." You know, you'd drop ten yeah. percent or whatever because he wasn't there. He, he did have that presence where you saw him trotting across the training ground in his tracksuit. Um, you thought, "Oh, here we go. We're going to have to work <laughs> hard again today." Uh, 1994 in the Cup Winners' Cup final uh, against Parma. Um, an amazing win because they were really a, a, a fantastic side at that time. Uh, when you look at some of the players they had, Thomas Brolin before he um, became larger than everything, uh, Zola, Aspria, you know, fantastic players uh, on that team. And Arsenal going into that game, you know, without someone like Ian Wright, who was uh, suspended for the final. Um, yeah. You scored a, a a brilliant goal. What's your memory of that? You know, it was one of those, I think, that when you hit it, there's probably a little doubt in your mind as to whether it's going to sneak in or not. Yeah. Um, never forget the night. I mean, we're obviously, as you said, massive underdogs with, with Wrighty being out. John Jensen had done his cruise shirts. Martin Keown failed a fitness test, so... We looked at this Palmer team and we thought, blimey, we're going we're gonna to have to go some to beat these lot. Mm. Um, but um, with that back four, back five, I think we thought we always had a chance if, if we could nick one. Um, and uh, it, was, it was one of those chances where I had to take it early, that overhead kick um, from the defender. And... Um, it wasn't until the keeper had dived and landed that I saw that it had actually ended up in the back of the net off the inside of the right-hand post. So, great feeling. I knew I'd struck it cleanly yeah. um, as, as the players converged. I mean, a lot of people do did think I was left-footed. I mean, naturally, I was right-footed, but from a young age, I'd always, always practised with my left, and I was almost as comfortable with that. Uh, side as, as my right and uh, yeah it, it came off crisply and uh, great feeling and especially great because that was a period of my career which I go into in depth in the book that I wasn't enjoying my confidence had collapsed to a certain extent I wasn't scoring in the league n not playing anywhere near as well as I once did so that was a bit of welcome relief really uh, much needed um so when we held out for the win, courtesy of a bit of luck and some great defending, uh, yeah, yeah, wonderful night. Obviously, the club had only won the Fairs Cup in 1970, so uh, yeah. meant a lot to, to Arsenal as well. For sure, you know, winning goal in a European Cup final for Arsenal uh, places you well and truly in the, in the history books. Was it always your intention to stay in the game in some fashion? Did you think about coaching? Did you think about management? Or were you interested in developing something else? As you said, you wrote for The Telegraph for, for 20 years. Um, what, were your, what were your thoughts after retirement as to what you were going to do? Well, yeah, retirement came as a shock. I mean, it was very quick. I'd 
tore my cartilage in the January at Millwall and in the June there's a surgeon telling me I've got to pack up. So mm. Gary Lewin always says that it was the quickest, uh, the shortest time span between injury and retirement he can he can remember. Um, so I had to think quickly about what I was going to do. I certainly couldn't afford to um, sit back uh, because, you know, I'd earned good money, decent money, but not enough to sustain my lifestyle. Two young girls, um, mm. we had to... Uh, look after and and writing was always something actually whilst I was a player that I thought I'd like to do afterwards and um, Michael Hart who was the chief football writer at the standard suggested I write a piece about going to pick up my boots at the training ground um, actually that emotional business of, of stepping away from the game and I did that and did quite a few more pieces for the standard that year and it grew from there um, I never really thought about coaching. I never thought about taking my badges because I knew that that wasn't my thing. It mm. didn't appeal. It didn't grab me in the way that it, it, it uh, you know, infuses some lads. And because the other side, the media side, was it, it was building, it was going well, I never had to go back and think, okay, well, maybe I will try coaching. It's... Uh, there's a strange thing, isn't there, when it comes to punditry, that people have this perception, whether it's true or not, that a player sometimes who has played for a club is perceived to be a bit more critical of that club because they want to come across as um, neutral or uh, at least unbiased when it comes to their punditry. Is that something you've experienced um, throughout your punditry career? Or is, is that a factor? Is that something you even think about? I don't know, maybe subconsciously you do. Uh, yeah, well, not even subconsciously. I think when I go along to an Arsenal game, I'm conscious that I need to be fair and represent the other side as well. Yeah. And obviously Arsenal fans have, have got on my case over the years for what they perceive as me coming down too hard on them. You know, during that 90 minutes, I can only say what I think, what I see. Um you know, you can't take it back on, on TV. <laughs> and, and I have been critical over the years. Um, it's, it's just one of those things. I mean, you know, I'm not a fan. I've got a, a different relationship with the club as all players have. And we, it's it's not the same as, a, as supporters. Yeah. Um, and I think that is difficult for some fans to, to grasp. They feel we should be back in the club that we played for. Um as much as I want to see Arsenal do well, you know, when when I pick up the microphone or open the laptop, I'm I'm not speaking as a, a former Arsenal player or on behalf of Arsenal, um, yeah. more to the point. Uh, and you just try and be fair, uh, whether that, you know, makes you a little unpopular or not. When you approach a game as a co-commentator, do you have a, I won't say a narrative in mind, but because you're obviously reacting to, to what's happening on the pitch, but let's say you are dealing with an Arsenal game and you do have a little bit of inside information perhaps because you know people around the club, you've played for the club, and I'm not saying anyone's giving you trade secrets or you're giving trade secrets away or anything like that, but you know when you do write something or when you do broadcast, does that then inform your opinion uh, during, a, during a game? Well, yeah, of course it can do. If if you've heard something, you've spoken to somebody before the game, um, it can do. Obviously, you don't want to betray any confidences and, sure. and say too much. Um, but uh, it gets harder and harder. Actually, I mean, over the years, I've noticed we, we, we've always we've got always got work to do, pitch side, doing interviews, going back to Sky Sports News and what have you. But um, Harder and harder to forge relationships with managers and, and coaches. I think they've become a lot more enclosed. Many of the foreign coaches don't know you from Adam anyway. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, they'll nod and smile. That'll be it. Um, but uh, back in the day, you, you used to be able to have a good chat. Uh, and they talk quite freely on the understanding that you wouldn't be uh, saying anything out of school. Um, but uh, it doesn't happen so much these days. You, uh, you go into a game... Uh, having not really uh, spoken certainly to the manager, mm. uh, you might have talked to one or two people around the club, but uh, yeah, you you've got to be quite circumspective if you have spoken to somebody. Sure, and is it work that you still enjoy? Is there enough about it that's fresh and different to 
to keep it enjoyable for you? I obviously don't want you to say, no, I don't like my job. It's a ridiculous <laughs> question, actually, you know, but I just mean that um, from the point of view of, of doing a job, you know, we all like a bit of uh, variety. And uh, does football still provide that for you? It does, yeah. Because I mean, live television, it, it can be quite scary and you, you get the the butterflies just before going on air. Still. Um, yeah, because you know that you, you've, you, you've got to give a good performance. If there's a big moment in the game, you've got to match the words to the action. You, you've got to step up to the mark. So, um, mm. yeah, I mean, I don't think people would, would really tire of live television. I certainly wouldn't. And, and going to... Going to matches. I mean, it is a dream job. I mean, talk about the buzz of a of a footballer hitting the back of the net in front of the North Bank. Uh, you're never going to replace that. Uh, but you know, do, doing television like that at the big game up on the gantry, you do you do get a little buzz of adrenaline, especially at the end where you feel you've done okay. Yeah. So um, certainly, I've uh, yeah, I, I don't tire of it at all. What have you made of? the last few months at Arsenal because obviously the the change has been pretty seismic Arsene Wenger after 22 years has has left the club um it's a change perhaps that was overdue but uh it's not just the manager that's changed there seems to be a lot of things changing about Arsenal as a football club whether we talk about the ownership where Stan Kroenke is going to take 100% of the shares um, sooner rather than later. What effect that might have is is um, open for debate, and we won't know until we get down the road a little bit. But there's been backroom appointments. There's a director of football. There's a head of recruitment. There's uh, the academy changes with Per Mertesacker going in there, Freddie Jumberg back as the manager of the under-23s, and Unai Emery and his staff coming in. It's a lot of change in a short period of time. Mm. It is, yeah, and and having spoken one or two behind the scenes who've been there for a number of years, they, I think they're just feeling the way at the moment. You know, they don't know, they obviously don't know how Unai Emery behaves, what he likes, what he doesn't like, how he is on a match day, when to leave him alone, um, mm. uh, and they're all just getting to know each other, uh, and that's going to take time because, as you say, twenty-two years uh, of one man and one man's methods. Uh, those habits become ingrained. Uh, some bad habits can become ingrained with players, which I think has been the case. And it's going to take a while for the, the culture of the club to change. Um, but already, I think we've seen, you know, a, a bit more accountability coming back into the business of playing football. If you're not doing it, he will he will substitute you, no matter what your reputation. Uh, and hopefully that's going to have a positive effect on everybody. If they want to be in that starting eleven, they know they've got to pull the weight. Um, so fascinating times. We shouldn't expect too much too soon. Um, I'm sure he would want to get a lot more players in his image into the into the team before he feels they are where he wants them to be. Um, but hopefully we'll see some signs of improvement this year. Mm. Do you, I mean, do you, would that be a concern for you that perhaps some of the players are, that have come in aren't necessarily of his image or is that, is it too soon to say? Well, yeah, I don't I mean whether he had a say in some of these players coming in. Obviously there was some arrived, I think before his appointment or yeah. agreed. I don't know. Um, but he's got, a, you know, play the hand he's dealt with if some of them aren't to his liking he, I'm sure he'll work very hard on them on the training ground um, in a way that maybe wasn't done before um, in terms of um, the opposition that video analysis he's mm. exhausted by all accounts in going into minute detail um, so I think there are improvements that can be made in that direction but as you say, uh, all managers, you know, they want their team, don't they? Yeah. They, they don't want a team that's inherited. They want their players, something that they feel is their own, of their own making. Uh, it's, it's obviously not quite there yet. What would you, just finally, what would you deem to be a successful first season for Unai Emery and, and for Arsenal under Unai Emery? If he got us into the top four, would that be a, a great achievement or... Is that where the the building block should come from? Well, I think I think yeah, I think top four. When you look at the opposition, it would be a great achievement, a great improvement on uh, 
the last couple of years without without doubt. Um, he'd take that, I'm sure now. Uh, if he if he could nick a trophy in terms of one of the cups, even better. You know, how's he going to go in the Europa League? Is that uh, going to be something he, he knows extremely well, that competition, doesn't he? Is yeah. he going to get some joy in that? Um, competing, I think. Um, you know, I don't see them competing for the title. I certainly don't see them on Manchester City's level or even Liverpool's. But um, of the others, maybe he feels he can get a bit closer. Uh, close that gap on Tottenham, perhaps. That would go down but really well um, but uh, as long as he can feel that there has been an improvement he'll feel that it's been a positive season I, I don't I don't think you know you, you would know better than me but I don't think Arsenal fans are expecting too much this year from him they just want to be see a little bit of change see things heading in the right direction yeah I think that's I think that's fair and I think uh, people are willing to to give him the time to do that and hopefully get the backing from the club and from the uh, from the owner uh, to bring in the, the players that he wants. Well, look, um, Alan, it's been a, a pleasure talking to you. The book is called Heads Up My Life Story. It was published yesterday, so it's going to be in bookshops everywhere uh, from today. So if you want to get out there and, and pick that up, and uh, we do have a competition on the site to win a copy as well, so people can, uh, can check that out as well. But uh, best of luck with the book and best of luck with everything else. Thanks uh, for talking to me. No, my pleasure, Andrew. Enjoyed it. Cheers. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There you go. That was Alan Smith. His book is called Heads Up My Life Story. It is in all good bookshops now. You can download it from all the usual places, Kindle and iTunes and all that kind of stuff. And of course, you can win a copy on the website. All you got to do is log on to https colon forward slash forward slash www.arsblog.com and you can find the competition there. You can win one of 10 signed copies of Alan Smith book fantastic right uh what are we doing what are we talking about i don't know oh yeah we've got west ham a game against west ham tomorrow the uh, very strange unusual novelty kickoff time of 3 p.m on a saturday it will never ever catch on I, i'm telling you it's a chance to get our first league win of the season our first three points on the board a home game if we can attack the way that we attacked at periods during that uh, Chelsea game, when you think of the chances we created against them, if we can create those kind of chances again against West Ham, I don't think we'll be quite as, what's the word I'm looking for here? Shit in front of goal. I think we've got uh, we've got good players and good strikers and good finishers who will take those chances if we create them again. There's no new uh, injury news or anything like that. Lauren Koscielny is back in London, but we're still without Maitland Niles, Kalasinac, uh, Koscielny, and one other, Carl Jenkinson, who was not going to play a part in this team selection. Who knows? Who knows what Unai Emery is going to do? I don't know. We don't have enough of a sample size to know what he's going to do or who he's going to pick. He did say he's going to only play one striker, though, but whether that means he could use Aubameyang on the left-hand side and Lacazette up front? I don't know. 
He could stick with Iwobi, who did very well, I think, against Chelsea. Maybe give him a run in the team. Will he play Mesut Ozil, who was strangely not at the races against Chelsea, just 15 passes? Was that Mesut Ozil, or was it the role he was asked to play and the, the style in which we're playing that, that leaves him a bit isolated? Normally, he's very involved. A lot of talk this week about Ozil and how he fits into the side, and I'm not sure I have the answer. I just kind of feel that if we are going to get back to challenging, at least for the top four, we need one of Europe's most creative players to create things for our strikers and our forward players, and how Unai Emery fits him into the side or not remains to be seen. Aaron Ramsey was on the bench uh, at Chelsea. Will he make it back into the starting eleven? Will Granit Xhaka, will he be on the bench this time? A lot of people expected Xhaka to be on the bench. Uh, for the Chelsea game, but he started and started poorly and then did okay in the the last part of the first half, but still came off. Lucas Torreiro, will he get a start? Will uh, Stefan Licksteiner come in for Hector Bellerin? What will happen at centre half? What comedy stylings will we get from our central defenders? Hopefully none. I'd prefer none. We can discuss all that and more, of course, on the Arscast Extra on Monday. So join myself and James for that. Hopefully, we'll be talking about a great Arsenal performance, lots of goals and lots to be actually optimistic about as the season gets well and truly underway with those two horrible games behind us. So uh, please have a great weekend as much as you can outside of Arsenal. Let's hope Arsenal make the weekend a jolly pleasant one. We'll talk to you on Monday on the Arscast Extra. Until then, cheers. Bye-bye. A very interesting snippet now on Sky Sports News from the Arsenal training ground. A list of the sprint speeds of the players was posted on Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang's Instagram. Unsurprisingly, the former Borussia Dortmund man is the quickest player at the club, followed by Hector Bellerin. But in third place was Socrates Papastathopoulos, new signing central defender, and in fifth, Skodran Mustafi. Nobody really expected either of those players to be that high up the list, and frankly, people are wondering wondering how they did it. Moving on to Liverpool now, and Jurgen Klopp says that Jordan Henderson is really... New from Adidas, Rocket Boots. Rocket Boots are boots with rockets. Rocket Boots. Do you need to move fast? Well, you need Rocket Boots. They're boots with rockets in them. Actual rockets, not peppery leaves. When you need to leave others behind, there's only one solution. Rocket Boots. Rocket Boots contain highly combustible, high-octane fuel. Not suitable for public environments. Side effects of Rocket Boots include high speed, severe burning, and intense death. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.